Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Get in there. Chevette's in there. Chevette, you're in there. You want Ryan around the corner? You want the kid Let Quebec. Let the kid run it. Okay. Get Quebec in there. Get in there. I gotta give this kid some experience. Watch that little kid from uh, from yeah. He's a tough son. Oh, he's great. for the touchdown. Perfect, the rookie from Boomer. He grew up in Garfield, New Jersey, 10 minutes from Giants Stadium. A short of a first down, Wayne Kravet. Kravet was able to work free. What a move by Wayne Kravet. Absolutely unbelievable. You're talking about a kid who is just all heart. Welcome to the Underdog Jets podcast with Wayne Corbett and Robbie Sabo. We are back, Jets fans. Episode two of the Underdog Jets podcast with Wayne Corbett and Robbie Sabo. And this time, we're going to go into history. It's going to be nostalgic. It's going to be about Wayne Corbett's, the Garfield kid himself, his start to the NFL career. Maybe get into a little high school, a little Hofstra, a little college as well. Um, summer in 95, basically, going into that season with Cotite. Um, Wayne, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. Good to be with you again, Robbie. Yes, and uh, first episode went well. We talked about the current Jets. Uh, and this is the stuff I think a lot of fans can't wait to hear because getting to know more about you and your trek to where you are now is something that I don't see any Jets fan turning away. So, uh, you know, let's let's dig into this. I mean, summer in 95. First, let's let's start from Garfield. I mean, 10 minutes from Giant Stadium, local kid. Perfect. I mean, walk on undrafted fights up the depth chart and becomes this Jets legend. Football in high school, did you always think it was going to be in football in high school? No. Let me say that, you know, going back on these stories, a lot of my career and life has been, uh, you know, put out there in, in articles and magazines and videos over the years. But people would be surprised, you know, how this all started. Like I was telling you, I never played tackle football till my sophomore year in high school. And basically... The reason I went out for football was because freshman year, I didn't play. I had a broken ankle from basketball camp. I saw all the girls that the football players got. Mm. So I was like, all right, I got to try this football thing out. So sophomore year, I went out for the team. And uh, it's crazy because they wanted to know what number I wanted mm-hmm. to play. And I was like, I don't know. They're like, well, what do you, can you throw? I'm like, yeah, like, can you catch? Yeah, like, all right, take a single digit number. So I took seven. Um, I could always catch, but I never understood the line, a guard, tackle, all the different positions and stuff like that. And it's funny because um, my sister was a senior and I was a sophomore, you know, going out and we had the pep rally in the, in the gymnasium at Garfield. 
and they announced starting split end and they said my name and I had no, no reason to believe that I would be a starter. And I had to run out there and my sister's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I have no clue. So that's how my, my career started. Like just, they threw me in there cause I could catch and uh, I was terrible. I was absolutely terrible in my sophomore, sophomore year. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, junior didn't do much better, but senior things kind of came together and I did well enough to get a look from some colleges. That's interesting. Um, so football sophomore year was your first year. I mean, that's, uh, it, it experience is huge. I mean, kids who start at pop Warner have a huge leg up uh, on other kids. Yeah. Um, you know, my high school, I know we were bad because we really didn't have a pop Warner feeder system. You, you know, you had to go to Port Jervis. You had to skip the state line to, to do it, which right. actually I did in seventh and eighth grade. So that that's interesting. And basketball, you were a point guard, right? Basketball. Yeah, I was a point guard. Yeah. And then yeah, um, basketball was always my thing. Basketball is what I wanted to do. Um, and I played, you know, I played all the sports growing up at the Garfield Boys Club, which has a lot to do with the success I've had going there as a kid. Uh, basketball, I just missed getting my thousand points at like 970. And and baseball, I played as well, which uh, played center field, which actually kind of helped being a receiver, being able to see the ball hit off the bat and the trajectory and the speed and being able to like essentially run to a spot where I knew the ball was drop. And that's kind of basically like going out for a deep pass and, you know, tracking it down. So, uh, you know, everything kind of like contributed, you know, to the success, success I had in football. That's interesting. Did you lead off to in baseball? Yeah, I let off, you know, a lot of stolen bases. That but, scrappy, uh, scrappy leadoff guy who would bunt every now and then and steal bases. Okay. I see. And I never vision. took a pitch, man. I was going up there hacking. <laughs> oh yeah. You were a free swinger, huh? Yeah, man. You gotta get your cuts in. Yeah. But, Wayne Gretzky, the Wayne Gretzky quote, you know, you miss, what, what is it? I can't even think of it now. You, uh, you miss every goal or shot you don't take. I butchered it. Sorry, Wayne. The other right. way. Uh, but yes. yeah, you, you went for it. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So uh, high school was, high school was a, a, a great career. And then, um, like I said, fortunately enough, senior year, I got some looks, did well. Um, and then most of the Patriot leagues teams were looking at me like Bucknell, Fordham, Lehigh. Um, and then, uh, my, my sister's boyfriend played for Fordham. So I went up to see Fordham play at Hofstra. And it was a Friday night game. And I was like, I always wanted to play night games and found that Hofstra played all their home games on Friday nights. And going to see him play, that was what got me interested in Hofstra. And ultimately, you know, that's where I ended up going. And yeah, that, that's in hat now. There's no more football at Hofstra, obviously. Right. Um, sidebar, how do you feel about that? Ah, it's terrible. You know, when I found out about it, you know, I'm not, I'm kind of at odds with the school over the fact that he got rid of football. Um, I think that we could have saved it. You know, the alumni, the former players, a lot of NFL players came from Hofstra. Maybe we could have raised the money, whatever it took, but uh, hopefully one day, you know, they can get it back because we had, we built such a great, uh, great, um, you know, program there. Okay. And then after college, the NFL draft rolls around. Yeah. Um, you know, I had some tryouts, you know, workouts. I did not go to the combine. Um, so I did what I could do with these workouts. You know, sometimes even the football wasn't even involved. You know, it was just like a track track workout. But, you know, I kind of said, can we throw the ball around? I'm like, that's my thing is catching. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't show you what I can do. I'm not going to impress you with doing 100-yard dashes in 40. You know, I did run a 447 my senior year at Hostra. So I could run. People – 
didn't know that, but yeah. uh, because they never ran a straight line on the field, I was always zigging and zagging. But uh, you know, ultimately, I did get some workouts and uh, got some looks. You know, just didn't get drafted. Yeah, that's that's a misconception about you. You you can run. You you are fast. And I got tracked down once from behind in my whole career. Which place? And, uh, and that was by Terrell Buckley, who was like a four-two uh, cornerback. So, yeah, there's no uh, shame in that. There's no, no shame in no. that. But um. Yeah. So what happened was after the draft, you know, the Saints and the Bengals were interested in signing me to a free agent. I had some conversation with them. Uh, actually, actually, uh, Jason Garrett's dad, um, John Garrett, was the brother. He was the receiver coach of the Bengals. Long story short, I did a workout for Mr. Garrett. And he said to me, he said, listen, the Cowboys don't need you, but I think you could play in the league. And that was the first guy that gave me you know, a, a glimmer of hope that maybe I could do this. Uh, and then the Jets came calling and they said, uh, you know, be a free agent. And they had no receivers, mm-hmm. no returning vets with any experience. So I said, Hey, I could come from my dorm and, and, and go right to mini camp. So that's the, that's the team I chose. So it was the Bengals first, then the Jets, that is the Saints. And the Saints too. Were there any you other people teams? People don't realize that. They think like I got like, you know, one shot. I mean, I had teams interested in me. Right. They just didn't draft me. Right. But now it's better not to get drafted in the later rounds because, you know, you get this, you know, different, uh, you know, different uh, options from teams. You go to the best situation for you. So actually it's better sometimes not to get drafted in the the later rounds where you have a choice where you're going. During as the draft unfolded, did you think there was any shot or were you ready to roll at once the draft ended to, you know, pick your team and, and, and go that route? No, actually, the Bengals and the Saints said they might draft me. Um, and then, like, the sixth, seventh round, one of them took a guy that was coming off, like, an injury in the other team. So I was actually disappointed. But, mm-hmm. you know, I was coming from Hofstra. Nobody had came out of Hofstra in 30 years. So, actually, um, you know, I was out of the house. And it was funny because my girlfriend at the time, who was my wife, was calling, like, did anybody call? I'm like, stop calling me. Every time I think the phone rings, I'm getting like drafted or something. And so I was out and I came in the house and my mom's like, John Griffin's on the phone. And John Garrett was the guy from the Bengals. I'm like, who's John Griffin? He said, hi, it's John Griffin from the New York Jets. You know, we'd like to bring you into the free. And I, like, I had no clue that the Jets were even interested in me because mm-hmm. I didn't really do much with them. And, uh, you know, that's how it happened. I was surprised. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history, you know? All right. And uh, so, you know, co-tight and the new staff comes through for Wayne Corbett and you go to minicamp, right? Right. And eventually training camp. What were your first impressions in terms of the competition at receiver? And how did that kind of work out in terms of, um, you know, everything at Hofstra uh, related? Yeah. Minicamp was, uh, Tough because people know the story of my first experience. I came from class, so I had a backpack on. I always wore my hat low. And I couldn't get into the facility because the security guard wouldn't let me in because he thought I was seeking autographs. And I'm like, listen, I got practice, man. He's like, no, no, autograph. I'm like, listen, I got to get in there. I'm going to be late. So uh, finally someone waved me in and I was like, if this is how this is going to be, this is going to be tough. So, uh, you know, that's how it worked out. But in mini camps, you know, the rookie camp, you know, there was a, you know, a lot of receivers, you know, I kind of like didn't know where I, where I belong, but when we were doing one-on-ones and stuff like that, I always made sure I'd kind of get in a situation where I can go against Aaron Glenn and guys like that. Cause I wanted to know if I could do it. 
you know, if I can compete with those guys. And I got a fair amount of confidence uh, going into a training camp in 95. Yeah, Glenn was, I think, I believe going into his second season, correct, in 95? Um, and you said, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were 13 receivers heading into, heading into training camp and when, you were when, number 13? When camp started, I was 11. But like 11. I said, it was groups of two. Right. You know, they didn't go four wideouts as much back then. So I was actually you know, go five sets to two and then I'd be the 11th. So I'd miss a whole rotation. Um, you know, but as the story goes, this guy's out of shape. These guys get hurt. This guy doesn't know the playbook. This guy's dropping passes. And slowly, you know, as we go through the um, preseason games, you'll understand how I went from essentially last to first in a matter of a, of a month. Right. And number three, this entire time too, was there a choice there? Probably not. Correct. No, uh, I think they just gave me three because I was number three at Hofstra. Gotcha. So, but obviously people assumed I was a punter or a kicker because those days, the guys, uh, the players who wore uh, single digit numbers. Yeah. You should have ran a 40 right in front of that security guy who stopped you. Yeah. You know, what's funny. He's a very old guy, Harry Fisher. I'll never forget it. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I'd be leaving there with ice bags all over myself. He was like, you got the ice, I'll get the scotch. You know, he's just a funny guy. We always laughed about, you know, that he won't let me in. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll always remember Harry. That's great. That's a sign of a good security guard, Yeah, uh, my friends. Yeah. So preseason starts, right? Week one. It is the memory in terms of your first shot vivid? Where um, Were you nervous? How were you feeling heading into that, heading onto the field? I didn't know what to expect. That first game was actually down in, in Tampa. Um, and they said that everybody would get a chance to play. And I was bummed because I like I got to run down on like one punt, mm-hmm. didn't do much. And the whole, you know, third, you know, second half went third and fourth quarter. I never got in. And I was really disappointed. And I'm like, this, how am I going to show what I can do if I can't get on the field? So uh, definitely the first preseason game, you know, ended in a big disappointment. How about week two? Oh, uh, that's what I was saying. Week two, we were in like Mississippi playing the Eagles. Same thing. Didn't get much time, you know, some, uh, some special teams, but I remember getting in there late in the second half and going against, we, you know, we came up to name, what's it, Bobby Jackson? Um, let me see. From the Eagles. He was, he was their pick. I remember he was a high pick for them and I got to get in against him and and I caught a couple passes and I was like, all right, you know, I felt good about it. Um, but it really didn't mean much at that point. Now going into the third week, that was the big week because that's the jet giant game. And I grew up 10 minutes from giant stadium and I always wanted to play in giant stadium, you know, for the jets, giants, whatever it is, I just wanted to play in that stadium. So we had a bunch of people there. Essentially, it was like my farewell because the cuts were the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, the first cuts were the next day. And this is how the story goes. If people have seen the video, you know, I always stayed behind the coaches, mouthpiece in, you know, strapped up. And it was early. It was in the first half. And uh, I just heard Kotai say, Chevette, get in there. I was like, crap. I'm like, that's close enough. So I ran <laughs> in there and uh, I did well. I was in there with the starters. Now I wasn't in there with the, you know, third string quarterback, third string uh, lineman. So I did well. I had a bunch of, a bunch of catches in that game. And uh, I felt really good after that and ultimately made it through the first round of cuts that happened the next day. Yeah. The uh, Bobby Taylor was the cornerback, but yeah, 
Chevette, yeah, that that clip is classic. Coach yeah. turning around. Uh, I forgot if he said anything other than Chevette, but he just said, "Where's the kid? Chevette, get in there!" Yeah. I, classic clip in Jets history. Yeah, so I was like, "Hey, that sounds close enough." So I'll go in there. But like I said, I was in there with the stars, and I felt good. I was like, "All right, you know, I showed something against a starting defense, not just a you know a third string a uh, third string defense." And the crazy thing is, the last preseason they ended up starting me. At Cincinnati, and I don't know how that happened. So I ended up starting. Like I said, guys were hurt. Things were happening. Things kind of just the, the stars were aligned. And I had like four or five catches, something like that, in the first half. And they took me out. And I said, "No, nah, I could do more." They said, "No, no, no, we've seen enough." They're like, and I was like, I didn't understood what that mean. Right. So, um, you know, we leave there. We come. We go home. And the next day is the cuts. And um, I hear, you know, there's a in Hofstra. There's a suite. And there's two bedrooms in, and I heard the outside door uh, get knocked on by the Turk, the guy who makes the cuts. Mm -hmm. And he didn't knock on my door. And uh, I tell you what happened. I felt asleep so deep after I didn't get cut that I was late for the meeting. I mm -hmm. made the team, but I was late. I was so nervous. I get there for the meeting, and it was a special teams meeting. And I just I was like, I'm going to walk in like I was supposed to be late. So I walk in all confident, like gave the nod, like. You know, I'm good. Don't worry about it like mm -hmm. that. I was sweating bullets, man. So I went downstairs and I see number threes replaced with number 80 for bet on my locker. And they had asked me what number would I want if I ever made it? And they, these eighties were available. I said 80. I'm a huge Steve Larger fan, huge Jerry Rice fan. So um, I have to get a cell phone back then. I call my mom and they're like, did you made it? I'm like, I don't know. They're like, ask somebody. I'm like, I'm not asking anybody. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to hang around and go to meetings. So uh, they heard on the radio that I made it. And that's basically, you know, how I found out that I was a New York Jet. That's uh, fat, interesting. And Cincy, too, quite a bit of irony, too, with that last preseason game. Yeah, um, being against them. Yeah. Right. All right. So, you know, Wayne Corbett, part of the 1995 Jets, Boomer Esiason at the helm. His uh, third head coach in three years with the Jets, which is also interesting, uh, from Bruce Coslett to Pete Carroll to Rich Kotite. Kotite's first year. Um, week one at the Miami Dolphins. This was a – you guys dropped this one. Um, we dropped a it, lot that first year. Man. Yeah, well, you, you <laughs> dropped a lot this year, but you dropped this one too pretty big. It was 52-14. Oh. Um, your your statistics, I think you put up a decent game, if I remember correctly. Yeah, six catches for 43 yards, uh, long of 27. So in Miami, right away, you're you're producing, which is interesting, with Boomer, with with the veteran, another local kid, too. Yeah. Um, Boomer took care of me. We didn't have veteran receivers, so Boomer kind of took me under his wing. I don't know if you're aware, people aware, but everybody calls me Q. Um, not sure people are aware of that because when we were in training camp, the rookies had their name across their thing, and he thought it said Cubert instead of Corbett, so he started to call me Cubert. And I'm like, he called me Cubert. I'm like, who are you talking to? It's like, you that's your name, right? I'm like, no, it's like, it's Corbett. He's like, well, I'm gonna call you Q, and that's how that nickname started off. But, um, he always tells a story how he was trying to make me go in motion on one of the beginning plays in the game. And I was kind of looking at the sideline. I was looking at uh, their sideline, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, Don Shula and Dan Marino are over yep. there. He's like, get your head in the game, man. I was just – it was just an amazing feeling, 
you know, when you're there pregame and they're announcing the starting lineups from Miami and they announced Dan Marino and it sounds like a jet planes landing. That's how loud it was. So that first, that first game was special and probably my first career catch is one of the top five toughest catches I ever made uh, uh, from Boomer, but uh, that kind of started it all. Yeah. Which, you know, uh, I've seen that video, by the way, I think someone made it a cartoon and it's on yeah. YouTube. It's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. It, it's hilarious. I, yeah. I suggest all Jets fans check it out. Um, but yeah, the, the offense was interesting. Uh, Bubby Brister too, was the backup too, which is notable. Uh, yeah, Adrian, some passes from Bubby that he year definitely too. Did. He definitely did. Uh, Richie Anderson. Uh, he got some time as well. Um, who else? Adrian Morrell obviously was the featured yeah. back. The guys who were coming back that were vets were Stevie, um, Yarbrough, and one other player. I don't know if he made it. Those are the only guys that had career catches. I think Rob Moore had just been traded uh, that offseason. And, and we yeah. never went three receiver, four receiver sets. We're straight uh, two receiver, you know, tight end. Two, you know, that's all we did. So we didn't really spread it out. There was nothing fantastic about our offense that first year. Fred Baxter, uh, Brad Baxter. Um, yeah. obviously fullback. So yeah, it's, um, obviously this is, this is a different episode coming in the future, but the 96 was different in terms of the free agent receivers uh, that were brought in and the drafted receivers that were brought in, but that's a story for a different day. Right. Um, week two was a tough one. I re- I remember it was Indy at home. So this is your first home game, but you dropped this one 17, 14 in overtime. Your stat line in this one, you didn't you didn't do too much here. Three targets, two receptions, fourteen yards, but your first career touchdown. Yeah, I actually still have a turf burn from it from the uh, the old Giant Stadium turf. Uh, yeah, I've seen the clip on the, um, you know on the internet of my first touchdown, and I've heard you know Marv Albert made the call, and uh, it's crazy because. I catch the ball and it's a touchdown and you can see on my face, like, I don't believe it. And I don't really know what to do. I never spiked the ball in my career. So I wasn't going to do that. I kind of just wanted to keep it. And I ran off the field. I wasn't sure what to do, but uh, yeah, the first touchdown, you know, wasn't a great day for us, but uh, you know, I got that first one in the books. We, we move on to week three, which this is your first victory in the NFL 27, 10 clobbering of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, they were still not yet ready for prime time with Tom Coughlin, although they were coming. They were coming quickly with Brunel. Um, 27-10, and you had, Wayne, 10 targets, which was tied for the team lead with Fred Baxter and uh, Charlie Wilson, Charles Wilson. Uh, seven catches, 58 yards, and another touchdown. So two touchdowns over the first three weeks. This undrafted kid, who is this guy? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the second one as much as, as, as the first one. But, uh, you know, at that point I was just trying to do whatever I could, you know, like I said, we're coming off losing the first, first couple, but, uh, yeah, like I said, it just kind of things started working out a little bit, but at that point, you see Charles Wilson was in there. I think we had brought him in, but I was still a starter, but we weren't doing, we we're just doing two receiver sets. So 10, tar- 10 targets was a lot at that point. But, um, you know, this nice, like you said, nice to start off good, but, uh, you know, the whole, you know, as the year went on, things got, things got certainly tougher. Yeah. And, um, 
Kyle Brady got a lot of targets. Uh, Adrian yeah. Morrell would get a lot of targets at times. Uh, the tight ends would get their fair share. Co-tight as an offensive guy. I mean, I know he was the head coach, but he was still an offensive guy. Um, what were your first impressions about Kotite heading into uh, the summer or the season or the preseason or the season? I didn't, you know, I, I knew of him from his uh, seasons in Philadelphia. Being a Giant fan, I always saw the uh, them play the Eagles and they're good teams. The thing about Richie was he had veteran lane teams in Philly who can police themselves and can take control of the team. And uh, when he got to New York, he didn't have that. You know, he had a situation where a lot of the veterans were taking advantage of him, giving them a lot of freedom to do things on their own. So I felt bad for him. But, you know, I will never let anybody talk bad about Coach Kotite. I mean, he gave me my chance. You know, he was from a small school, Wagner, um, and he believed in me. You know, it's funny. It was probably about that point in the season where he found out that I was sleeping on someone's couch. Mm-hmm. that I had actually rent an apartment because I didn't know what the rules were. If you can get cut at any point, even though I was a starter. So um, he says to me, I heard you're sleeping on someone's couch. And I said, yeah, he goes, well, get yourself a place. He goes, I feel like you're going to be around for a while. And I was like, wow, that was a, that was a pretty cool thing. So, uh, you know, things didn't work out for him in New York, but uh, you know, I love when I can run into him, you know, at any point and just tell him, thank you for what, what he did for me. I mean, a little thing like that goes a long way because yeah. if you're, you know, you're trying to make a team, you're, you're an unknown, you don't want to, you don't want to create havoc. You don't want to cause any ruckuses. You just want to go about your business and work hard. So, right. you know, the fact that Kotite recognized that, that's, that's a big deal. That's impressive to me. Yeah. And he always uh, smacks me in the face when he sees me. He's like a boxer. He smacks me. He's like, you're a good kid. I'm like, I miss him, man. I haven't seen him in a long time, but uh, I'd love to run into him again. Yeah, Kotite. Uh, interesting stories. I hope more stories of Kotite pop up um, yeah. later down the road. Boomer. I mean, Boomer's an interesting one, too. You know, veteran at this point, MVP of the league, so close to winning a Super Bowl in Cincy. Uh, what were your first impressions of Boomer? How did he take to you initially and then over the course of the 95 season? Um, I don't think he took to me initially. Um not that he thought it was a joke, but he he's even said jokingly that, you know, when he saw me in the huddle, he was like, what am I supposed to do with this guy? You know what I mean? But um, I, I wore on him, I guess, a little bit. You know, I, you know, I listened to everything he had to say. I tried to spend extra time out there with him. But, um, you know, I, I, I let him know he can trust me, you know, that he threw me the ball. I'd catch it and, and produce for him. Uh, and it didn't take much time. You know, Boomer's a great guy. I see him frequently. We we laugh and joke. He busts my chop endlessly on the radio. You know, all the time I hear him telling stories about me and mm-hmm. and this and that. But that's part of that's part of the history of of Wayne Crebet with the Jets. And Boomer's a big part of it. You know, and I thanked him when I got in the Ring of Honor just because uh, certainly wouldn't have made it through that first season without him uh, without helping me out and you know and tossing me some uh, some footballs. Yeah, Boomer, the longtime WFAN morning host, who yeah. is not slowing down anytime recently. No, he's the busiest man in sports, man. I don't he know how everything. he does it. He's a machine. I don't yeah. know how he does it. And I he mean, does great work with his charity. And um, like you said, it, I'm I'm a better player and a better man for for knowing the guy. I mean, other guys uh, before we head into week four of the regular season. How about Kyle Brady? You know, he was. The it's big. interesting. I lived with Kyle Brady. Okay. 
um, down on the beach um, at that point, you know, going into that end of the year and the next year. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is the first day of the draft that year, I watched it out with my parents. I was at a restaurant or bar or something like that. And they booed him so bad when he got picked. And I was like, wow, I feel really bad for this guy. So they ended up playing with the guy. And we talked about it. We joked about it. But, uh, you know, he had, he had some tough time in the beginning, you know, just the um, what, what the, the fans and everybody expected out of him. But uh, he turned into – wasn't the greatest, you know, receiving threat. They didn't give him any chances, but he's probably one of the best blocking tight ends you could ever find. And he ended up finding this place with other teams. But a super guy – you know, super friendly. And, uh, you know, another thing, a guy that helped me out tremendously in my, uh, my work a year. Yeah. He, um, you could see that highlight everywhere where fans booed him, you know, yeah. unmercifully. And uh, you understood the pick Kotite was a former tight end. Interestingly, my high school coach, uh, backed up Brady okay. uh, at Penn state and he caught a touchdown in the Rose bowl, uh, Keith Olsimer. So he knew Brady pretty well too. Yeah. Um, good guy. Good guy. Yeah. I don't know where, what I think he ended up coaching, but he definitely, definitely helped me a lot when, uh, when I got there. So yeah, week, um, let's move on to week four. You guys are one and two at this point and you go down to the Georgia dome, Atlanta to take on June Jones and the Atlanta Falcons. I don't think they were run and shoot anymore at this point. I could be wrong. Yeah. It's, they were run and shoot if it's June Jones. So 13, three, you guys lost um, three, three after one quarters and they just, you guys didn't score the rest of the way. So tough offensive day um, down in Atlanta. Any memories from this one? Um, it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's the first time I ever played in a dome um, in, in the, in the NFL. And I remember um, getting hit, getting blindsided in the game. And I was sitting on the bench and I was kind of out of it and I'm looking around and I see like all the advertisements for like, you know, like things like McDonald's and Gap and all these different things. And I honestly thought I was in the shopping mall looking at the food court. I thought uh-huh. well, I was looking at all the signs and I, like, I didn't know where I was. I was so out of it looking at all the signs. I thought I was in the in in, in, the, in shopping mall uh, food court. And I always laugh about it. Like, why was I out there? Like, I didn't let anybody know about it or anything like that. But that was my first serious concussion uh, in the, in the NFL. And, uh, you know, I think I caught a couple passes, but for the most part, you know, nothing, nothing tremendous. I mean, that might've been the game where I broke the the gang tackle, but, uh, I, I didn't end up scoring on the play. Yeah. I think it was the, in our intro, the Marv yeah. Albert call where you break the, the three yeah. players trying to tackle you. And I think you went out at the one inside the three somewhere. Yeah. I stayed up and actually I tried fighting and I got stood up, which is a bad place to be. And then the last two guys coming in actually knocked each other off. And I took off like 30 yards, but I just stepped out on the, on the one, but uh, it's definitely a play that people uh, saw, you know, what I was willing to do out there. And Chris Collinsworth too was yeah. the, the partner of Marv at the time. I, I, I'm assuming it was NBC uh, still doing the AFC games, but four catches, 56 yards that game. Um that's interesting. You didn't tell anyone about the, about the injury, huh? You didn't miss a play. Uh, <laughs> I was in there when I, wa- I didn't remember being in there, but the next day when you go in and watch film, yes. you're watching it and you're like, I guess you're on autopilot out there. You kind of just, 
like a robot out there. You just running, running the plays, you know, but uh, yeah, that was definitely a, a bad one, but uh, you know, worse cause we lost. Yeah. And Troy Aikman, I forgot which Super Bowl it was, but he describes uh, one of the two Super Bowls, one of his first two where he doesn't remember the entire game. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. And you watch film when you see you're doing things and you don't realize you even, you, you even did them. But um, like I said, those first four games were definitely, uh, you know, a learning lesson <laughs> on what it's going to be like the league from the wins and losses and, and, and injuries and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, overall, I think I held my own. But uh, like I said, things certainly got tougher as the year went on. Uh, correction. He does. He didn't remember the NFC Championship game, uh, Niners okay. in January '94, heading into the Super Bowl. Because I remember the Super Bowl, it was fifty-fifty whether he was going to play or not. So you know what? To, not to jump ahead, but there mm-hmm. was later on in my career, I was playing in Dallas and I hit the head on the turf, which was really really hard at that point. And I remember I lost all peripheral vision in one of my eyes. It was just like white. So I couldn't see it to your, the doc's fingers was here. And he's like, uh, they took my helmet. Like you're out. We get the ball back. I'm like, where's my helmet? And like, you can't play. I said, give me my helmet. Or I'm going to kick your F and ass. And they're like, here you go. So actually in the game, I had no peripheral vision. So I actually had to turn my whole head to be able to see the ball to catch it. Cause Man. I couldn't see out of the one eye. It That's... was uh things like that. So I understand what Troy was talking about. I I mean, people don't realize. I remember there's been a couple of occasions where I've heard radio callers on the fan suggest after a bad call in the playoffs, why don't why doesn't the commissioner just have them play on Tuesday or Monday? People don't realize, you know, some guys you feel like you were in a car wreck after one football game, especially yeah. in the NFL. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. What I got um, on that play, like I couldn't see. And I got an optic migraine. So they said, when your vi- as your vision comes back, you're going to have the worst headache you've ever had in your life. So they pumped me full of like, you know, Advil and Tylenol and all that stuff. I tell you what, when my vision started coming back, I felt like I wanted to die out there. So people yeah. aren't even aware of some of the things they're watching that are actually happening in the game when they're watching at home and stuff like that, man. Scary stuff. Yeah, it's it's no joke. It's yeah. it's. There's a reason why football is only played once a week. It, yeah. There's a real reason. Well, and, like you said, that's why some people are worried about an additional game. Some people are like, oh, I'm not 100% during the year players. I'm like, you're never going to be 100% ever in your life again. You're, you know, you get beat up in training camp and you're just lucky to hold on through 16, 17 games. So uh, anybody, you know, anybody thinks that you could play, it's this whole Sunday, Thursday or you know, uh, you know, Monday, Thursday schedules, it's tough on players. And the other thing is too the turf. I mean, yeah. Turfs are better now. I mean, oh, back yeah. when the, the old veteran stadium, yeah. I mean, it was like playing on concrete, like playing on blacktop, but uh, you know, the giant stadium had a nice feel, but when they came and, and uh, put the new side in, that was, that was, they did a great job with that in, uh, in giant stadium. You're talking about the, when they went grass. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I like that a lot. Um, was that, that was probably Parcells is doing maybe. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it felt better for me playing on grass than, right. uh, than on turf. Right. And you know, the field turf now is great with the rubber it's yeah. it works, but man, the Astro turf, that was just, who came up with that? I don't know, man. I, I, I love the old red logo in the middle of giant stadium too, but I always think of the turf when I think of that logo. Yeah. So. You see, um, it's funny, guys get turf burns, you know, all over your body. I still have scars. 
and you see guys would go uh, go to go in the shower and just lock up like this till the water hit all those turf burns, and it, it it was terrible. And you're like, oh man, I don't I don't miss the days of the old turf. But what they did put in with the the grounded up rubber that was that was nice. Yeah, that's nice. And like you said, too, the grass short lived, but the grass at Giant Stadium was pretty nice too. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, baseball fields. How did you feel playing on a field where there was a baseball diamond on the field? That, that's tough. Like I remember, was it Oakland? You'd go from mm-hmm. running on grass to dirt. So, you know, you had to be aware of that and just trying to break down and run like an in route or a comeback or something like that. You definitely had to have, you know, your weight over the, the front of your hips to uh to to be able to come out of a cut like that it definitely you know this is definitely strategy to playing you know on a baseball field yeah i remember the old some of the old candlestick games where the field would get muddy just completely yeah. muddy, and that'll never happen again ever again right it's interesting um and there's a reason why baseball cleats are different from football uh cleats because of the dirt so yeah i would you know actually we had the um the screw-ins and i actually had the longest screw-ins than anybody had just because i wanted to be able to stop right not the best for your knees but be able mm-hmm. to stop on in two steps and be able to change direction all right so first four first quarter of the season of 95 in the books um we'll pick it up next time with week five and again jets fans will keep going in the timeline in this fashion bouncing around back and forth from time to time uh, getting guys on to interview and obviously talking about the current Jets. Uh, Wayne's first summer, first training camp um, with the coaching staff, with Rich Kotite in the books. Any any final thoughts, Wayne? Yeah, we won't dwell on these uh, <laughs> these first two seasons too much. You know, we went three mm-hmm. and 13 in the first year. You know, my buddies are busting my chops. Like, uh, I'm like, listen, can't get any worse. Don't worry about it. And then we go one and 15, which is like, you got to be kidding me, but we'll get into the Parcells years and how we turned it around. And, uh, you know, some of the, some of the best teams I, I was there in the, you know, in the middle and end of my career. So a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. Yeah. And even though, I mean, even though those first two years were rough four and 28, I, I think a lot of fans love them because of, you know, some of the characters like you. And even the, even the old uniforms as well. Those are the last seasons with the old uniforms up to 97. Um, I guess we'll close with this. What are your thoughts on the uniforms? Do you have a personal favorite with uh, the Kelly greens, the classics and today's? I got the old Kelly green right there behind me. You know, it's my rookie year helmet. Uh, I always liked that. I'm always remember, uh, you know, wearing that, that was my first, you know, uniform, but uh, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the older ones, the throwbacks, but uh, the new ones, you know, I'm getting adjusted to it, but I do like when they wear uh, the all black uniform. I kind of like that. I, I would have liked that, but uh, you know, I do like the, the originals. Yeah. The all the all black are nice. The Kelly yeah. greens are nice and the classics Parcells brought them back at just the yeah. perfect time. I, I like those. Yeah. That first week against San Fran, uh, the, the Garrison Hurst play in overtime. Yeah, I don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I had a good game too. We all had good games. And then some guy, you know, somehow this guy busts out 90 yard run. I mean, uh, who it's a was tough it way to lose, man. To go, and then that's a long play ride home after a yes, loss like that. That's a long play. Mariucci was excited after that yeah. one. And who was, who almost caught him? Mo Lewis. Was it Mo Lewis who almost caught him at the end? I think it was Mo Lewis, but I'm not sure. 
Yeah, that was Parcells was perfect with the timing on yeah. those uniforms. <laughs> so yeah, until next time, Jets fans, it's the Jets Underdog Podcast with Wayne Corbett and Robbie Sabo. Until next time. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.